Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Oh, man, what a brutal night. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are recording late after the Bruins' historic season just came to an end. Horrible, horrible, horrible loss. It was all for naught. Those records, they mean nothing now. Absolutely nothing. And we'll get into a lot of other stuff as well. We'll recap the NFL draft with my buddy Andrew Callahan from the Herald in just a little bit. We'll also preview the Celtics 76ers series with Raheem Palmer from the Philly Special, the Ringer Gambling Show, and East Coast Bias. So we'll get into that series in a little bit as well. But let's get back to the Bruins. That's where we start because this is flat out embarrassing. You're up three games to one. You choked it away. This one tonight, it was more of the same. This team finally woke up at the third period. You take a three to two lead and you can't finish the job. Montour scores with less than a minute remaining. You were a minute away from escaping the Florida Panthers, moving on to play the Toronto Maple Leafs. And you choke again in the third period. And the thing about it tonight, it's more the same, right? You think about the Montour power play goal. Orloff has to come over on that play because McAvoy is going with Lundell. And then Swayman, by the way, is too deep. But Orloff doesn't come over to make a play, right? It's just sloppiness in your own end. Carlos somehow, by the way, after that, pops one over the net from point blank. But anyway, the second goal, Reinhardt makes it two to nothing. Hathaway, prior to the goal... He had iced the puck with no pressure on him. So that was a misplay by Hathaway. And then he tried to one-hand the puck out of the defensive zone and he failed to get it out. Mental mistakes. And on that same play, Lindholm had a chance to get the puck out of the zone as well. Neither guy could do it. It's sort of a theme of this series for the Bruins. Just sloppiness. Sloppy play after sloppy play after sloppy play. Heck, you go back to game five, right? Bertuzzi has that brutal turnover in their own ends. Swayman, or excuse me, not Swayman, Olmark in this case had that unbelievably bad misplay. These are misplays that cost you games, right? And it happened again in game seven. And then you look at game six. You have two bad turnovers from Clifton that led to goals. And we'll get to Clifton in a little bit here. And then you look at it in 
Game seven, you give up four goals, right? So, I mean, you look at this team all season long. They've had not only one of the best offenses in the NHL, but we know they've been one of the best defenses in the NHL. In fact, the best defense in the NHL. You look at it, entering game seven, they were giving up 3.67 goals per game. During the regular season, that number was at 2.12, which was obviously the best in the NHL. And that number that they had entering game seven, 3.67, Only four teams were worse than that in the season. So the Bruins went from being the best defensive team in the NHL this season to being basically one of the worst defenses in the NHL against this Florida team, right? So you were so good defensively all season long, you just completely fell apart. And you were so good at home all season long, and you fell apart at home. You lost the last three games on your home ice. You lost game two, you lost game five, and you lost game seven. And there's no way around it. The pressure... The expectations, they got to the Bruins. I don't know how you could argue to the contrary, right? And even the coach, Jim Montgomery, pushed all the right buttons during the regular season. He had a bad series. Think about it, right? And after the game, he said the only thing that he would change is he wouldn't have split up Bergeron and Marshawn when when Bergeron came back from the injury. And by the way, Bergeron said after the game today that he was playing through a herniated disc. So think about that. I mean, this guy's battling through that back injury, which is... Crazy to even think about that he was out there gutting it out. But nonetheless, you give him credit for that. Obviously, the Bruins lost, but you give him a ton of credit for battling through that type of situation. But think about, I don't know how Montgomery can say that's the only thing that he regrets. I mean, think about game six. Why did he put Clifton back in the lineup? Clifton on five on five in this series, the Bruins were outshot 30 to 19 with him on the ice. Five goals against one four. Five high danger chances, 12 for the opponent. Okay, the Forbert clifton pairing, which he went back to in game six, Outshot 21 to 11 on five on five. I don't understand why you would do that. Why would you take Grizzlick out of the lineup for game six when Grizzlick and five on five play? I'm not saying he was outstanding, but you were basically even with him on the ice in terms of shots, high danger chances, all that different type of stuff. I don't understand the idea of going back to a situation where you put Clifton back in so you can put Orlov up with McAvoy when McAvoy plays well with anybody, including Grizzlick. So I don't understand the idea of getting Clifton back on the ice. To me, that was just mind-numbing. And in that game six, (laughs) you had two bad turnovers from Clifton that led to Panthers' goals. That's the move he made. So he's up here after the game, after game seven, and he's saying that he only regrets the Bergeron-Marchand thing. How? There's plenty of things you could have regretted, right? And like, what was the point of that? Going back to Clifton, it's a mind-numbing decision. And this isn't second-guessing. Everybody thought before the game, why are you doing this, right? And you think about your strength all season long, your goaltending, right? And Swayman, by the way, as we alluded to the first goal today, he's too deep. But I thought he played pretty well other than that. But how about Olmark, right? This is a guy that is going to win the Vesna. Game six, he was bad, okay? He should have made the save on the Montour goal. And he couldn't stop Kachuk from jamming one in there as well. So, and if you look at Olmark throughout the season, 1.89 goals against during the regular season, that was up to 3.34 in the postseason, 16th. Okay, save percentage of the regular season, 928. That was at 896 in the postseason, which was 15th. And I don't know why, getting back to Montgomery, why he's saying like he doesn't have any regrets besides the Bergeron-Marchand thing. Why didn't he make the switch quicker? Prior to game six, you should have contemplated going to Swayman. And during game six, it was obvious that you should have gone to Swayman because in that game, Olmark's given up juicy rebounds and he literally couldn't catch the puck. He was horrible in that game. You should have made the change then, right? And you look at it, another theme of the series, giveaways. In the game tonight, Bruins, 18 giveaways, Panthers, nine. Go back to game five, 17 giveaways, 10 for Florida. The game two loss, 15 giveaways for the Bruins, five for the Panthers. So this is 
been something the Bruins have been great at all season long, protecting the puck, making the right decisions. And in this series, it's just like they lost their mind with all these giveaways. And the other thing is, I would just ask, what happened to Hampus Lindholm? He had this great regular season, and he was just a complete no-show in in this series, right? He didn't have a point in the final three games. And the Reinhardt goal that we alluded to, he also had a chance to get the puck out of the zone. Hathaway, I mean, he messed up twice on that same instance, but nonetheless, he couldn't get the puck out of the zone either. So if you put all this together, your Vesner winner was a no-show. You played a sloppy brand of hockey that we haven't seen all season long. One of your best defensemen didn't show up. And your coach, you can question a lot of the decisions he made, especially the Clifton thing, especially not going to Swayman earlier. So I I don't understand this whole idea of the fact that he's saying that that's the only thing that he doesn't regret. It's just, it's shocking to me. And the unfortunate part about all this is this team is all in. You think about it. They don't have first round draft picks until 2025, or I should say they don't have a first round draft pick until 2025. They don't even have a second rounder this year or next year. 2024, you don't have a third rounder. Like, look, you made the right moves. You brought in Bertuzzi. You brought in Orloff for first round picks. You would do that again because you think that that gave you an opportunity to get to a Stanley Cup. Unfortunately, your team just didn't come through. Like, Don Sweeney made the right moves. And all these moves made sense. You were a historic team. You had everything you needed. Three elite defensemen, McAvoy, Lindholm, Orlov. A third line with Charlie Coyle and a Hart Trophy winner in Taylor Hall. A 60-goal scorer in Pasternak. A Selkie Award winner in Bergeron, right? He's going to win it again. Marshawn started to roll. He was really good at the beginning of the series. The Zaka trade was a perfect fit for that all-check line this season. And it's just all for naught. You were the deepest team in the NHL, and you just choked this away. And now there's the whole bergeron Krejci question as well. Bergeron did say after the game that he's going to take some time to make his decision, but definitely something that it wouldn't surprise anybody if Bergeron decided to retire after the season. I mean, you saw him after the game, very emotional, was on the ice, a big hug with Krejci, so it wouldn't shock us at all if Bergeron decided to hang him up. So it just, this was the perfect season. You had the perfect team and they just completely came undone. And it was a 3-1 lead and you blew a 3-1 lead. It's incredible to me. The only thing that I can think is similar to this loss in recent Boston sports history is the Patriots lost to the Jets in the divisional round in 2010. Remember, they had beaten the Jets on Monday Night Football 45 to 3. They had completely embarrassed them. And then they lost 28 to 21. Bart Scott, the can't wait game at home in the division round. And remember this whole thing with Wes Welker, when Welker's out there talking about like mocking Rex Ryan for his foot fetish, being good little foot soldiers, all that different type of stuff, right? He said like foot or feet like a million times at his press conference. And Bill, like, inexplicably benched him. Remember that? He benched him for a series. And there's just bad vibes around that team that entire week. But that's the only thing it reminds me of, because it doesn't really remind me of, like, 07, the Patriots set the record, but they ended up going all the way to the Super Bowl, right? So, that like, in terms of a team that we had such high expectations for, like the Florida thing, I thought this was going to be over in five, especially after you take two, you're up 3-1, winning both games in Florida. You figure the series is over, and... Again, I, I just keep coming back to the sloppiness, right? The Bertuzzi turnover, the Allmark misplay. How many times could we go through the series and look at those plays where the Bruins were just sloppy with the puck? And this is something they haven't done all season long. So if you do something that you haven't done all season long, what does that tell you? They were too tight. The pressure got to them. It all caught up to them. And this Florida team, give them credit. Like, it's not as if the Bruins were the better team. 
the Bruins may have been better in game five and they just made a couple of turnovers, but for the majority of the series, the Florida Panthers were the better team. Montour was great in the series. Kachuk was great in the series. And it's just unfortunate. Like we felt both these teams, the Celtics and the Bruins, are going to make these deep, deep runs into the postseason. And it's just not going to happen. Like I, I am stunned. I am shocked that this actually happened with how deep this team was. This Florida team was the worst defense in the NHL coming into the postseason. And their defense wasn't even great in the series. The problem was the Bruins defense, which we thought was a huge strength entering the season or entering the series, they were just completely exposed. And it's just unfortunate that now this Bruins team, like Bergeron and Krejci, them making a deep run in possibly their final years, just not going to see it. And Olmark turned into a pumpkin. No way around it. Like, as sloppy as this team was defensively, you're the Vesna Trophy winner. You got to win some games for your team, and he didn't do it whatsoever. I mean, you go back to... In the past, like Carey Price making that run for the Canadians a couple of years ago, when they get into the Stanley Cup final, it's because of him. When the Bruins win in 2011, Tim Thomas, they get there because of Tim Thomas. Olmark was a no-show. No way around it. So if you're looking at disappointments in the series, Olmark's going to be pretty high on that list in terms of the disappointment meter. And I would put Montgomery up there too. Even though he doesn't regret, he only regrets one move that he made, I would regret a lot more moves if I was him. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll get to something more positive. The Patriots had a good draft. We'll get into that next with Andrew Callahan of the Herald. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he is back from the Herald, Andrew Callahan. Callahan, before we get started, man, I was talking to you before we got on here. How are you feeling, man? How many articles did you write over the past few days? I'm doing well. The last couple of days, I think we crossed a dozen because that's just part of draft weekend. But I feel like a vet now because normally my brain goes to mush. I have the Sunday scaries on a Saturday when the draft ends up. And then I don't actually have work on Sunday or Monday. Like you just get, as uh, Sadiq Sow told us, my brain went into a scramble when he got picked in the fourth round. I didn't get picked in the fourth round, but my brain usually is scrambled. Right now, we're feeling great. So good to be on. So is that like the busiest time of the year for you guys, like in terms of the volume of articles that you have to push out? Is it the draft or is it a different time? Yeah, no question about it. And God bless the Patriots who just had to go into day three with nine picks, um, <laughs> eight of which were bunched together in the fourth round, in the sixth round, just boom, 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 because you have the pick. You got your notes. If you don't know the player that well, which was the case a couple of times yesterday, you're scrambling to find a draft guy from Dan Brugler, NFL.com or Danny Kelly. And so then you're writing up, you know, uh, who the player is. And then about a half hour after we have a conference call. So there were picks happening yesterday where I'm watching the TV, waiting to see the name flash like everyone else across the bottom. And then I have, you know, again, City Sal from Eastern Michigan, this offensive lineman I just <laughs> found out about, telling me about his life story, driving from Quebec as a high school kid on a bus to get looks from college coaches. And I'm like, that's wow. really important. But you know what? They just took a punter. So I'm sorry I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. So he literally like, took buses so he could get seen by college coaches? Yeah, that's the crazy part. So, you know, again, Dane Brugler does an unbelievable job. Danny Kelly, likewise. But the the stories we'll have in the next couple of weeks from these kids that they took are incredibly rich. And this is the best moment of their lives. And forget that I'm like tweeting out that Antonio Mafia is 6'3 and a really good run blocker. And the first mentions are like, practice squad sucks. 
And I'm like, thanks. Do you want me to forward <laughs> these to his parents who are in the background celebrating with him? Because they really need to hear this right now. But yeah, you know, whether it's Mafi or it's Sal or it's even Jake Andrews, uh, the Troy Center um, that they drafted first yesterday. Like there, there's so much background on these guys. It's not there's a volume of them. Naturally, you're going to have some good stories. But there are a, a lot of really interesting guys they took last year. And you want to tell those stories. But we're on to the sixth round. So you got you to gotta move quickly. All right. So let's start with Thursday night because I'm watching the Celtics and I'm watching the draft, right? Like you get the two screens going and it just felt like that day Thursday just went so fast because I'm on edge watching the Celtics because that got way too close and I thought they would dispose of the Hawks easily. I give the Hawks credit and all that. But nonetheless, then I see the Patriots are on the clock and it's the 14th pick and two of the guys that I wanted right there, Christian Gonzalez, the cornerback who, of course, they eventually took and Jackson Smith and Jigba. And I'm thinking to myself, they trade out. I'm like, no, he doesn't want one of these two guys. Like, he's going to trade back. He's going to take somebody else. And then when he gets to 17, both those guys are there, and he takes Christian Gonzalez. So I got to say, like, from a whole process thing, Callahan, it's very difficult to criticize anything the Patriots did in the first round because they get a guy in Christian Gonzalez that most people had as the number two corner in the draft. A couple of people, you mentioned Danny Kelly. He actually had him ahead of Witherspoon. So a couple of people actually liked him more than Witherspoon. But the point being, most people had him as the number two guy and you picked up another draft pick and you screwed over the Jets in the process by avoiding them taking the guy they wanted, who was Broderick Jones, who ends up going to Pittsburgh with the 14th pick. So, I mean, I love the whole thing that Bill did on Thursday night. And that's my favorite part about this. I mean, aside from they got a top 10 player at 17th overall, but the lead of my story that day, and everyone talks about this is such a Belichick draft because they took a kicker, a punter, a corner in the sixth round who doesn't even really play defense. He's just on special teams. And then today they signed some kid from App State who didn't play defense, literally three snaps last year as an undrafted free agent. The Belichick part of this draft was the first round, trading back, screwing the Jets, getting the guy he wanted anyway. It was a masterstroke. So yeah, I love the pick like everyone else. If you have a criticism of it, you were just looking to be upset, which I get coming off last year. But how nice is this? The draft goes for the Patriots as it should, as opposed to way off the board and everyone's miserable right from the start. Yeah, I was absolutely thrilled with the first round pick. So speaking of Gonzalez, just looking at him, one of the things I've seen is at times he can be slow to get his head around, find the football down the field, sometimes lacks awareness on run plays. So look, everybody's going to have flaws coming out. And like you said, this guy's a top 10 prospect coming out of the draft. Like everybody's happy they got Christian Gonzalez and he projects to be a stud. But is there anything that you've seen or heard in terms of what a concern would be with him? So it's funny. I didn't watch his tape until late because, you know, he, he was projected as a top 10 pick. I was more in on Witherspoon. Witherspoon kind of jumps him as we go through this process. And it was strange because my fiance just got me into Love is Blind. And so I'm hearing all these things, talking about it with Chris Gonzalez. And then the final reveal comes and I sit down and watch his tape. And they've got 30 days in that show to decide whether or not you want to get married. I was in. I was ready to go to the altar and say yes, because he's incredibly <laughs> fluid. He's built in a lab. The questions you had coming into his junior season when he transferred from Colorado to Oregon were ball skills and tackling. The kid missed three tackles all of last year. So the stuff about getting his head around late. And I asked Matt Grow about this on Thursday night. It was like, did he show improvement in those areas? Because they're big for the Patriots, tackling and ball skills for their corners. He's like, we saw him catch footballs at the combine. Like, yeah, he can catch a football. Ball skills are more than that. But I'll just say whether it was what you heard in the front end or in the back end, yes, there's always going to be some sort of questions about a guy. For him, it might be physicality. Does he want to stick his nose in there? But like anyone held up to Devin Witherspoon is going to look like you're soft because that's just the way the way that dude plays. But yeah. Christian Gonzalez is the exact type of player they needed and they got. That's an A-plus every single time. 
Yep, I'm with you. So, all right, let's get to Keon White. So, before we get into him in particular, they stay at 46 and they took him there. So, I was kind of surprised that we didn't see a trade up just because we've seen it so frequently over the past few years where Bill is like always trading up in the second round. Heck, he did last year, right, for the Thornton pick. And they had a lot of ammo to do it, right? They had all these fourth round selections. They, of course, picked up an additional one with the Thursday trade. So, you would think that they would want to address the tight end position. Michael Mayer ends up going 35th to the Raiders. We saw Luke Musgrave go 42nd to the Packers. They could have taken a tackle, too, at 46. I believe you mocked, right, the North Dakota State kid to them at one point during the one of your mocks you had him there. So just overall, the plan, they go defense with the first three picks, and then they took three interior linemen. And, like, coming into this, you would think, okay, tight end's kind of a need, tackle's kind of a need. So what did you make, before we get into White, as I said, in particular in the selection, what did you make of the plan to draft all those interior linemen and draft all the defensive players with the first three picks? So two things on this. The offensive tackle group, and this has been noted by Phil Perry of NBC Sports Boston, I agree with him, is I think they looked at that class and said, after the first couple of picks, this class sucks. I'm like, we, we don't want any no. part of this. They signed Calvin Anderson, of course, Riley <laughs> Reef. I think they're higher on Riley Reef and Calvin Anderson than basically everyone on planet Earth except for members of their family. But they figure with those two, Trent Brown, we'll find two starters out of that group. Connor McDermott's back. We'll do our work ahead of time and then maybe get a developmental guy, but that's it. Yeah. The tight end group was more interesting to me because that class did not suck. That was a very good class. And we heard it for years, or not for years, for, for months that this was the best class in years. So they're in that position. And on Friday, before the draft starts again with round two, I'm mapping out all the different ways they can go with their four fourth rounders and four six rounders to move up. And all it would have cost to go to, as you mentioned, where the, the Raiders got Michael Mayer, was two fourth round picks. So I think they looked at it and said, would we either have the one tight end because Hunter Henry, Mike Kosicki are in contract years, the other guys are practice squad, that's it for the whole position or two or three offensive linemen in the fourth round to really fortify that position. Their math and their decision was we would rather have more picks for more positions and more versatility. I might've gone differently, but I think that was just the math they did there. And I asked Matt Groh about this last night. I said, okay, what was the thought process? And his process was, well, they went really quickly. So they did like some guys. Luke Musgrave went, I think, in the early 40s to Green Bay, who's another player I thought really could have worked for them. But when you had a guy like Keon White, who they did take at 46, and this is the last part of it, they had a first-round grade on Keon White, and Mike Reese reported they were considering taking him at 17, and Belichick basically gave voice as such Friday night. So if you have a first-round guy, a first-round grade on a guy you can get at 46 versus tight ends who are probably borderline day one, day two, I think that's where their decision was. He's just so much better than the guys we could have, even if it's that big of a position of need. Yeah, that's interesting. So now, like, sort of the offseason makes more sense in terms of the free agency period, as you mentioned with the tackle situation, bringing in Riley Reef. So the plan there was okay, we're not going to draft a tackle unless we get one like really high in the draft. So we yes. better have some depth there before we go into the draft. And then the second part of that in terms of the tight end thing, that's compelling too, because it was almost like, hey, we have this kid, Keon White, sitting here who we have a first round grade on. And we think he's significantly better than whether it be Mayer or, Mu or Meyer or Musgrave at their position. So that was sort of the decision they came to is he's a better player than any of those guys. And even though maybe an edge player isn't as pressing of a need for us as a tight end. We just can't pass up on the talent. Exactly. And the other part about this is I think you default, they might not agree with this, but this is my philosophy speaking. If there's a tiebreaker, like tie goes to the premium position. Pass right. rusher is arguably the second most important position 
in the league after quarterback. So that's what Keon White is going to bring is pass rush off of the edge. And with the tight ends, you can still trade for a veteran. Anyone you're bringing is probably going to be more of a blocker because Kasicki's really going to function from people I've talked to is just really a slot receiver for them. Um, and he can't block, has not blocked since I covered him at Penn State. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so that's just that's just how it is. But I, I was surprised, again, because they just don't have the bodies there. But ultimately, if they had that high of a grade on Keon White, his position, his upside, I think he'll be able to contribute from day one. Like, you go with that player if he's going to come to you, which is exactly what happened with Christian Gonzalez in the first round. Everyone applauded it anyway. All right, so you mentioned Keon White. This guy is massive. 285 pounds, Callahan. That's in the 91st percentile. Bench press, 30 reps, 89th percentile. He had the seven sacks, I believe, last year. So the guy's a lot of potential. And like I said, I thought they had more pressing needs, but I do like the player. Um, How do you feel about White just in terms of having an impact? Do you think it's going to take a little bit for him to get going in this defense, or do you think he's going to be an immediate impact player as a rookie? So if you couldn't tell from the TV broadcast, this dude is all business like oh, yeah, yeah probably, that video's unreal the worst <laughs> least enjoyable reaction to being drafted into the national football league and you know i'm serious because i spell it nfl it's the go-to radio tv trick right there but he is someone who's just ready to work and that's a cliche it's the tweet it's the instagram ready to work let's go to work time to work blah 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 but that's that's literally him this is a guy who's into real estate he's 24 he was a domino's delivery driver at old dominion where he started as a tight end goes this isn't working but i still want to play goes to georgia tech and plays defensive line so this is like something he's picked up very recently, a hobby. And he's really freaking good at it because he's a really freaky athlete. And I think that's the other part about this pick that I like is that when things don't work out for Keon White, he jumps out of the wrong gap or he lets a run go for eight yards and first and 10. Second and two, he can just pick up the offensive tackle in front of him with those bench press numbers, push him <laughs> back and get a tackle for loss. And whether it's Christian Gonzalez, who has really great makeup speed and he might jump for something at the line he shouldn't have, you have freaky athletes on your team, but the Patriots have been lacking. They can make up for their own mistakes the same way if you or I stammer or slip up on a podcast. You have some sort of quick joke you can make. Everyone forgot about that slip or that stammer. Keon White, with those tackles for loss, which he had a lot at Georgia Tech, averaged more than one per game in college, is going to be able to do that. And I think if you specialize his role as a rookie, he'll probably be able to step in as your edge setter in 2024 and a full-time defensive lineman who can really play, kind of like Dietrich Wise, across the whole line. Yeah, I'm starting to feel pretty good about this defense, Callan. They were good last year. I mean, we did reference the fact in the past that every good quarterback they played, they lost to. But you add a really good corner. You add an edge player with a ton of potential. And you already have Judon and Uche just had that breakout season. I feel pretty good about where the Patriots are at defensively. Like, this has potential to be a top five unit in the league. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and you look at the defense just as it was last year, the first time the Patriots got the 50 sacks, uh, or any defense under Belichick has since the late 80s it's going to be a pass rush led defense again, no matter how many corners you took in the draft, nothing was going to change that. So amplify your strengths. You already papered over a weakness and a hole in your roster with Chris Gonzalez. That's done. Don't try to pretend like all these rookies are going to plug all these holes. Do what you do well, make it even better. And you mentioned Uche, he's going into a contract year. Okay. Matt Judon is going to turn 31 soon. Anthony Jennings is entering a contract year. Like you need players to reinforce this pass rush and add to it, not only just now, but in the future. And I think Keon White, who is a top 10 player, by the way, for Daniel Jeremiah entering the draft process, we had a conference call with him. He named him and Lucas Van Ness and a couple other players as like, these guys look like Patriots. He was top 30 for Kuiper. Again, I talk about tiebreakers, freaky athletes went out for me or premium positions. My evaluations versus Daniel Jeremiah and Mel Kuiper, tiebreaker goes to those guys. They've earned it. So I, I, I'm really, really in on this pick the more I study him. Oh, so speaking of Daniel Jeremiah, 
Marte Mapu, you reference this in your one of your articles up at the Herald, and I, I saw him tweet it too, that this is his favorite player in the entire draft. So he's coming off a torn pack. And my whole thing about this is, and I know you wrote about it too, like they have Duggar, they have Phillips, they have Peppers. I, my guess is that the plan is to have him replace one of the, those guys eventually down the line. But again, this seems like sort of an odd choice to me, just in terms of the position there, right? Like they have to be correct on this pick or it's going to look really bad because it really, another box safety was not a pressing need at all for this team, especially in the third round. So again, our good friend, Mike Reese provided some context in his notes this morning, seeing the Patriots called at least multiple teams looking to trade out of the third round. What I can report about this pick is that Bill loves Marte Mapu. This was something I heard at the combine. It's one of those things where, like you mentioned now, you kind of sound like a jerk, but it came true. So I'll let you know because you don't report every single thing you hear. Some of it's BS. Some people don't know what they're talking about. If you confirm it, great. Everyone knows. If not, you hold on to it. I heard it then. I checked in with the team source right after the pick was made and I tweeted the quote that I got back, which was Bill loves him. So this is a pick where I think Bill wanted to move out. Instead, the best player on the board was someone that he looks at 6'3, 221. Really light for a linebacker, really a big box safety, as you mentioned. But you watch this kid play, which I did immediately after the combine, after hearing that. And he's like the small dog who barks like he's a German shepherd, except for the <laughs> dude actually plays like a German shepherd. Like he is hitting guys who are 40, 50 pounds heavier than him and making them move backwards. And yeah, you could be like, okay, he played at Sacramento State, not a big deal. He's good in space. He can run with tight ends and linebackers. Again, he's a very good tackler. He's instinctive. He's just a, a guy. Like you make room for players like Marte Mapu. Now, I say all that, and unlike Keon White, where I've kind of come around on this pick, I've gone backwards in this instance because we talk about positions they could have filled because they didn't draft a tight end or an offensive tackle. That's an area where unless you really, really, really hated this class at that point in the draft, I would have gone with one of those positions and tried to figure it out later or trade it back out for Marte Mapu because it was a luxury pick. He was Bill's yeah. guy. He'll play immediately on special teams. But Phillips is under contract for two more years. Duggar's entering a contract year, but you should resign him. Jabril Peppers is under contract for two more years. Like, what's his role immediately as this defense? It's just, it's not really clear. Yeah, and... Duggar is really good. He's a very yeah. good player. And <laughs> they should resign him. Yeah. They have tons of cap space. They, they yeah. love him. Him and Uche, I believe they should sign both those guys, but especially Duggar. And I feel like he's sort of one of the tone setters on that team as well. So my point being is you have Duggar, who's really, really good at that position, and you have Adrian Phillips. I get it that he's aging, but he's a good player too. So I guess this, it's a good way to put it. Like it was a luxury pick for Bill. Bill really wanted the guy. I do feel better about the process knowing that they were trying to get out of that third round. Like that makes me feel a little bit better about it. But man, I just, and the kid may turn out to be a really good player. I just feel like it from a value perspective, I, I didn't really like what they did there. All right. So they did go after some specialists, Chad Ryland, the kicker from Maryland. And we know that Nick Folk is what, 38 and he can't mm -hmm. kick off anymore. So he could have an instant impact when it comes to that. They also took a punter, Bryce Berenger. First team All-American, 45.7 in terms of the net, which was the best in college football last year. And they took Isaiah Bolden. The guy has really good speed as a returner. So it seems like they wanted to overhaul their specialists. And if you hit on these guys, especially on your kicker and your punter, it's obviously big going forward because we saw the punting situation last year. The Patriots had the two worst punters in the NFL in net last year. So this is something clearly they had to do. Now, if they whiff on these guys, then it's really going to look bad because you took you used two draft picks on him, but I can totally understand why they went after the specialist because clearly that's something that 
it had been so good for so long in the Belichick era, and it got so bad last year that clearly they needed to address this. But did you have an idea entering the draft that they may target a couple of specialists? I did because I watched them play last year. Um, and you mentioned it. They're punting <laughs> with the worst, the worst situation in the entire league. And then I was at the combine and they had three special teams coaches there when you include Joe Judge. And so they were spending a lot of time with kickers, a lot of time with punters. And then, you know, it was Judge, it was Cam Accord, it was Joe Houston. Those guys go on the road and try to scout those same players. They were at the pro day. We heard from Chad Ryland at Maryland and worked him out. And so I started doing digging again, things you hear at the combine, do your homework, get ahead of things. Ryland takes a very analytical approach to kicking. Like, yes, it helps that he's banged a 50-yarder every single season. Oh, this is going to be my favorite player, Callahan. This is going to be my favorite player. No, it does come with more risk because, as Zach Cox noted from Nesson, you know, right away, this is the highest drafted specialist under Belichick that we've seen. So, like, you don't see a lot of kickers go in the fourth round. Even the team that takes kickers in the fourth round, being the Patriots with Steven Goskowski, they haven't done this before. So Ryland really needs to deliver. You're missing a punter in the six, whatever. They got Corliss Waitman. He kicked for Denver last year, which is kind of like punting on steroids with the thin air, whatever. You've got a guy at least there. Ryland's the guy now. So for him, again, very professional approach. He considers his leg speed, the angle, the wind, just the sometimes the spin of the ball goes back and watches all the kicks. He's been like this for a long time, transferred from Eastern Michigan. So yeah, I had an idea. I think he's going to hit because he was a consensus number two kicker in the draft behind Jake Moody, who went in the third round. But you got to see. You got to find out. I mean, they took Justin Rohrwasser. Tattoos aside, that kid was talented. And then he got to be a basket case in training camp and never saw the field. So this is unfortunately one of those you just kind of have to wait and see. Yeah. So, by the way, thanks for the reminder on Rohrwasser. Totally (laughs) forgot about that. Tattoos aside, did a lot of heavy lifting there. I don't mean to take that lightly with the far right wing militia groups. Uh, But yeah, the the on field product was almost as bad as the tattoo. Yeah. I mean, you're right. So you got like the yips and training camp or whatever it was, right? Like in practice. He almost knocked over a porta potty that was way off to the side. (laughs) It was on the the neighboring field is what it was. And then one had playing off of the roof of their practice bubble. Like that's that's how bad it was. The only story you need to tell about that summer. Yeah, I'd say they whiffed on that pick. But but do you think Ryland's got a chance to get the job this year from folk or no? Definitely. I mean, Falk, you mentioned it, 38. Like I, I wrote a story about Nick that took a lot of interviews with him and got to know him. And you talk about an analytical approach to the game. Matthew Slater told me for that story, he prepares like no one had been around. And that includes, of course, Tom Brady for all the years as Slater, who's been in New England since 08, shared with Brady before he left in 2020. So Falk, wow. though, I mean, he hit the crossbar from, I think it was 46 or at the longest 48 in December last year. And you just can't have that in cold weather games in Foxborough yeah. with your playoff lives at stake. So I think they got the best at Nick Folk. He was one of their best players the last few years, but his best football is definitely behind him. And this was the right time to take a kicker. Yeah, it definitely was a good signing when they made it a couple of years ago. Like he definitely worked out for them, but probably time to move on based on the strength of the leg at this point. All right. So they did address the receiver position very late in the draft. Kayshawn Booty, and you had the note in your article. This is crazy. So he reached 100 career receptions, Callahan, at LSU quicker than Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, and Odell Beckham Jr. It's just wild to me. He also, as you mentioned in your article, set the record for the most receiving yards in a single game in the SEC with 308. But he had some effort issues, some off-the-field stuff. And just looking at his testing, I mean, he tested really poorly. 29-inch vertical leap, which is in the second percentile. So look, at this point in the draft, I love the idea of taking a guy that at one point was projected to be a first-round pick. He was obviously a big-time recruit as well. The testing stuff, though, it is kind of alarming, but 
at this point in the draft, it doesn't make sense to take a flyer on a guy like this. Like, I, I like the pick. I like taking a chance on a guy like this. But what did you make of, like, his whole pre-draft process, the testing, and some of the issues he had at LSU? They were the number one, two, three, four, five reasons that he fell, right? I mean, he was coming into the season as a projected first-round pick, not only for the stats, but just the raw talent. And you go to LSU where there's also so-so quarterback play. I mean, but that's been a receiver factory. So they know what they have when they see it. It's just new coaching staff comes in, clashes with Brian Kelly, the so-so effort. He also had seven drops. But I think at this point, the draft, six-round pick, he was number 187, I think. Who cares? You know, like those guys yeah. are more likely to get cut than not or end up in a practice squad. Take the most talented player. Take a yeah. guy who comes into the league, not as the number two receiver in his recruiting class, which he was going from high school to college, and a big man on campus who's got some leverage or thinks he does. You come in, you need to prove yourself right away. They don't need him. They would love to use him. He'll have an opportunity. And Brian Kelly supposedly told Todd McShay that he kind of came around at the back end of last season. Also dealt with a broken bone in his ankle, which I think contributed to those poor combine numbers because mm. you just don't see this on tape. And I've only watched a little bit of booty um, last night. And that's a phrase I did not think I'd be saying on this podcast, but that's how <laughs> we pronounce his name. So here we are. Uh, but ultimately, that's the exact type of player if you're the Patriots who have a lot of solid but unspectacular receivers. Roll a dice on a spectacular guy who set records at a place where Odell Beckham's come through, Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson. He was better than all of them for a certain part of his career. It just so happened to be the earliest part. What are you going to get out of him now? They don't even know. I checked in with some people with the team who said, we have no idea if he's going to buy in. But at that point, it's worth the gamble. And so give it an A, A minus, whatever it is. He was the best player on the board. Yeah, I like to pick two. And the other thing I'd say is that makes me feel better that note on the injury that maybe that's why the testing was so bad, because it doesn't really make sense, Definitely. right? If you yeah. watched him play at all at LSU, he doesn't look like a bad athlete. He looks like a really good athlete. So it is odd. Now, the other guy, Demario Douglas, you noted in your article, the Pats were around him at the East-West Shrine game, 993 yards last year. He's a freak. Now, he's tiny, but he's like under five foot eight, but 39 and a half inch vert, which is in the 89th percentile. 134 inch broad, which is in the 97th percentile. So he's there at this point of the draft because of his height, right? Because the explosion, the athleticism, it's all there. It's just he's very diminutive in stature. Yeah, it's a height thing. It's a small school thing. It's a the whole receiver class kind of stinks at that point. And so he's probably off the board for the reasons you mentioned, just the physical parts. But Look, I did three mock drafts. He was in my last one, one of the four picks that I got right. And I would have had him in every single edition if it just didn't make for boring reads because it's the same guy over and over again. But they liked Douglas going into the East-West Shrine game. They came out liking him even more. And it's the other part that you just mentioned there, the athleticism. Again, Keon White, Christian Gonzalez, freak athletes who can make up for mistakes mid-play just because of their rare physical abilities. Douglas, if he goes backwards a little bit, can kind of escape out of a jam. I look at him and he's like a jitterbug at open space. So you can, again, can go to the small school stuff, bad competition, blah, blah, blah. He showed out against Arkansas in Wake Forest. And every single team that played Liberty knew he was going to be getting the ball. His volume went up, the defensive attention went up, but his efficiency per game and per catch stayed the same. So 13, 14 yards per catch. This round, he went 210th in the draft. Again, you're throwing darts at this point. That was a player that was one of my favorite picks in the whole draft. He might not make the 53-man roster, but between his return ability and a guy who just brings something new to the receiving core, I, I love that pick. Yeah, and it really does seem, and I'm guessing a lot of teams do this, but the Patriots got a ton of really good athletes this year, like yes. maybe more so than they have in previous seasons. We talked about how athletic and how big White is. Obviously, Christian Gonzalez at the top of the draft, but 
Douglas as well. So that's obviously a big thing going forward. Oh, just speaking of receivers real quickly, what do you make of Tyquan Thornton entering year two? Like, are they still really high on Thornton? Because we didn't see a ton from him last year, really, Callahan. He had that one game where he got the end around. He took it in against Cleveland, but he didn't really have an impact. And it felt like, and you were there every day. I wasn't there every day in training camp. He was getting rave reviews before the injury. I remember watching the preseason game against who? The Raiders. And he had that catch in the end zone. I'm like, oh, this guy may be pretty good. And then all of a sudden, it was basically he was a non-entity almost. Yeah, so the the touchdown catch came against the Giants, which was their the first Giants. preseason game. And then he broke his collarbone in the second one against Carolina and didn't see him until the Lions of week five. And he did not practice in pads from the time he broke his collarbone until he faced Detroit, people who wanted to take his head off in that game. Uh, at all. So they have confidence in him. They have a lot of belief in him. The trouble for me was, and I wasn't as high as the consensus was in training camp, because I think part of it is the shiny new toy in New England. It's like, hey, you get an athletic linebacker. Look at Raekwon McMillan. Oh my God, he's so fast. You feel like a beat dog. Raekwon McMillan, solid player, uh, not in the top half of most athletic linebackers. Tyquan Thornton is, as far as speed goes, but how does that apply? How can he use it? Can he get off the line? How is he at the top of his routes? He was fine. But then in the second half of the season, with as much opportunity as Kendrick Bourne had, he was worse. Now, he's a rookie, of course. I I'm so long story short, I'm not banking on a big year two leap. The trades are still there. You always count on, you know, giving guys the benefit of the doubt, dealing with the total offensive mess that it was last year. Mind you, Bill O'Brien also has a background coaching receivers in New England before he got the job as the offensive coordinator 12, 14 years ago. But I'm not penciling him in right now, honestly, as a top four option for them. I'm, I, I want to wait and see it. Yeah, and it, you're right. It was the Giants game that he caught that one. The Raiders game was the one where we were all panicking, and we were looking at it like, this is not going to be good. The, Bailey the Zappi threw an interception to, I think it was Isaiah Zuber, former Patriots receiver turned safety because F it, it's the fourth quarter of the last preseason game, yeah. and everyone's clamoring for Zappi. who ended up playing very well, but I just had to remind everyone there for the next four weeks. He threw an interception to a receiver playing safety. So it's, uh, yeah, crazy things happen in the preseason. And I just, I remember the operation was really bad in terms of the play calling against the Raiders. Oh, it's, yeah, it's horrible. I did an emergency pod on a Friday night after that. Like, this is one of my first weeks at the ringer. We did an emergency pod to talk about the <laughs> Patriots offense. That's how bad it looked. It was pathetic in that game. And you like, weren't wrong though, right? No. It, sounds, it sounds so stupid. Final preseason game, freak out and Mac and this and that and Zappy's pick and whatever, but you know, it's fake football. Like, let's get on to the real thing in Miami. Oh no, it was worse. It was was yeah. worse when it counted, but we don't it have can't, to It can't get worse than that, can it? No, actually, it can get a lot worse. So they bring in Malik Cunningham, the quarterback from Louisville, as an undrafted free agent. You noted that he's open to a position change. Apparently, he could change. he's a really good athlete. But I also look at it from this perspective, Callahan. The Patriots historically have struggled against athletic running quarterbacks, like we saw Lamar Jackson light him up in that game last season. We've seen Josh Allen have his way with the Patriots when he uses his legs as well. This could help them practicing, right? Like usually don't they take a receiver and have them like play the quarterback when they're getting ready for these athletic quarterbacks? Yeah, Miles Bryant finally gets a breather. I mean, that dude was playing Lamar Jackson in 2020 <laughs> as a rookie defensive back when he was running offensive scout team. And he's like 5'9", 180, still learning the defensive playbook. And they're like, no, 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 no. We need you, we need you to be Lamar Jackson right now in practice. So yeah, if, if they face... Uh, which they don't face the Ravens this year, but players like him, Jalen Hurts is going to swing through Gillette. We'll see other mobile quarterbacks because that's just half the teams on your schedule nowadays. Um, Malik Cunningham could be that. He ran a 4-5 in 
uh, during the draft process. So I think he's someone, again, who could possibly change positions really good in the open field, not particularly accurate, inconsistent mechanics as a quarterback. So I think they just look at it kind of like they did De'Aaron King a year or two ago, who was a much lesser athlete than Malik Cunningham. One of these, we'll figure it out when you get here. Now, De'Aaron King figured it out uh, that he was not going to fit by the time rookie minicamp rolled around. They cut him. So I'm not saying it's going to happen with Malik Cunningham, who, according to Doug Hyde, got 200 grand guaranteed, most they've ever given to a non-drafted rookie. But the traits are there. I think they're just excited to kind of play with this ball of clay and see what they can make. All right. So here's the big question with this Patriots team as we get closer to the season now. Did they do enough in free agency and in the draft to help Mac. And look, Bill O'Brien's part of this too. That's the biggest plus for Mac is he's got a real legitimate offensive coordinator, even if he's not one of the top five or maybe not even, we'll see how Bill O'Brien does this year. I do think it's interesting that throughout his basically play calling days, if you will, he always had like a number one guy that he just fed. Like when he had DeAndre Hopkins, he would just throw DeAndre Hopkins the ball. Same thing with Wes Welker. He would just throw Wes Welker the ball. So he is going to sort of have to adapt to this team because they really still don't truly have that number one guy. Maybe they think it's Juju Smith-Schuster, but I quite frankly don't think it is. They did do put a lot of resources into the offensive line, right? Three interior linemen they drafted, and we mentioned they brought in Riley Reef. They bring in Calvin Anderson. I would I I would have liked them to get like a legitimate number one weapon. They didn't do that. It's definitely a better team on paper offensively than it was last year. But do you think it's enough for a guy like Mac Jones who does have? his limitations as a quarterback that he's going to go into the season again without a legitimate bona fide number one option. So I look at the question like this. Are are we asking that the Patriots build a perfect situation for Mac Jones to thrive within? Because that's obviously what he did at Alabama, crushed an undefeated season, national championship, first round pick, all that. Or did they give him enough where he can succeed? Because if you're the quarterback who needs a perfect situation in which to thrive, you're not that good. Okay, and Mac Jones didn't right. have a perfect situation in 2021 when he finished and we're all looking at him going, yeah, he was probably between like the 12th and 15th best guy in the league above average. Look at the year two leap. He could maybe be top 10. If he's still that player, they have enough here. Like this is an offense that is going to be better, I think, than 2021 when you had just a regular offensive coordinator, experienced play caller, someone who's coached quarterbacks before. Bill O'Brien is here. The offensive line has to be better than it was last year. And part of that was the draft. They just look at this, I think, an offense as a whole is kind of a weak link system, okay? Defenses are going to attack whatever mismatch they have. You could argue, and I think well, that the offensive line has a couple of weak links, whether it's Riley Reef or Calvin Anderson at right tackle, but they're like, we have enough bodies there where someone's going to work out. Draft the interior offensive lineman. Mac Jones will not face interior pressure, whether it's Cole Strange, Michael Manu, David Andrews, Jake uh, Andrews, City So, whoever it is. And I just think, that the offensive tackle is the only real question because you have enough receivers there. They'll come through. You have enough interior alignment. They'll be able to protect. They'll certainly be able to run the ball. Tight ends are okay, but you upgraded the receiving talent. If Mac needs anything more, he's probably not your guy and you need to move on. So yeah, I think there's yeah. enough there and, and that's what matters most. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. If you need your situation to be perfect, you're probably not going to last in the NFL very long. So that makes a lot of sense when you put right, it that way. What else? Everyone wants to talk about the mobile aspect of, quarterback play now and like what do you need to be a modern quarterback can you create on your own i've said this too like a guy in the nba who can create his own shot the last few seconds of the shot clock are you extending plays in the nfl part of that's true but that's a way to make up for errors by other players you know the offensive tackle who lets a rusher dip inside when he oversets okay the receiver runs the wrong route can you escape and do that max not going to be able to do that but i think what they are counting on is if that rush does get through he's got such a quick release 
that they're that will paper over some of their issues up front at offensive tackle. And so with guys who can get open over the middle, work in the slot, Juju's a slot guy. If Mike Isicki's going to be in the slot, that's what I think they're counting on amplifying Mac as much as just giving him enough to work with. But yeah, it's there. It's it's time to kind of put up or shut up. Yeah, huge year for Mac. And speaking of Mac, the whole back and forth with Bill on Thursday night about <laughs> Mac and his future with the organization. He, Bill was asked about them shopping Mac in the offseason. He said, quote, I would not respond to anonymous quotes. He also said he still absolutely feels the same way about Mac as he did last summer as well. So it did feel like last year there was obviously some frustration with Mac, some of the stuff on the field, the behavior on the field. It, w- it was a shitty situation for everybody, right? I mean, in terms of Max dealing with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, it's not working. He's frustrated. Belichick doesn't like the fact that he's on the field, like yelling at the offensive coordinator constantly. So I can understand why everybody was sort of frustrated. But do you feel this offseason Bill is back in Max camp, so to speak, because he has had all these opportunities to say Max, the quarterback, and he keeps going back to like, what was it? 23 is 23. And we'll see what 23 is basically the other day talking about the quarterback situation. But it does feel like he sounds different from last year to this year in terms of how he talks about the quarterback. Look, I love my job. I love coming on your podcast. I've had a lot of fun. Am I just allowed, though, to be tired of the whole Mac and Bill drama? Like, I am so ready for football. I think we all are ready for football. And I am someone who reports on this, wrote a whole story about the dysfunction. They were prominent characters in that story back in January. Naturally, I talk about this on TV and radio, whatever it is. I just think it's old news. I think they're ready to move on. Bill's comments were noteworthy. It was a good series of questions by Greg Bedard. And Bill, for as much as he is a master of eliminating distractions, has a real propensity to make things more difficult than they need to be. And we've seen this since Matt came back in October from his high ankle sprain. And he won't commit to him as the quarterback of the future, asked multiple times. Is he your starting quarterback now? His response in January. I think Matt has the ability to play quarterback in this league. Owners meetings. Everyone will compete. Yeah, we get that. It's professional sports. Competition (laughs) is the bedrock of everything you do. (laughs) But is he your quarterback? And so he, he... creates these distractions with his non-answer disdain from the media. And again, that's his prerogative, but it kind of goes against, you know, his whole mantra and focus of ignore the noise. Well, the noise is created by him. And so the fact that it was even just an absolutely, I feel positive, mind you, in that same series of questions, Bill did not actually say he's a starting quarterback, which again, granted, we get it. You have to earn your starting job and Bill O'Brien's here. It's just, it's just so much. And I yeah. think they, they're they're in the process of burying the hatchet. Mac has been there every single day. I can tell you the coaches are happy with the work that he's putting in. They have a real system in place. But the real reason for faith is Bill O'Brien. And if he has to be a buffer between Bill and Mac, so be it. But I think there's no more excuses on either side where Mac knows he's not going to have to exclaim on the football field because he's got a real offensive coordinator who knows what he's doing. And Bill can't get mad at Mac because, you know, he stopped putting him in that position in the first place. So I'm just... I'm just tired, but I think I think we're all ready for a rest, and I think we're ready to move on, which is the best news of all. I'm with you, man. I'm with you in that in the sense that it does feel tiresome to be like doing sports talk radio. Coming up next, does Bill hate Mac? Like that? It's 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 just, and I it's the quarterback, it's the coach, it's the greatest coach of all time. There's a lot of intrigue here, but if we don't have hard reporting, mind you, the last yeah. report, quote unquote, that came out was Bill shopped Mac, and this came out in early April, and it's late January. Okay, if you go shopping. And you don't buy anything or you don't sell anything and nothing happened. Like, who cares? You know, yeah. I spoke to what we already knew. The relationship was not great. Mac did not play well. He doesn't have great trade value. 
He's still in the building. They're moving on. They were not going to draft a quarterback in the first round. Tom Curtin said they were not going to trade him at all. And they didn't take one. And if they did, it would have been the third or fourth round. That guy has no guarantee of anything at, at that point anyway. All right, Callahan. So before we let you go, they didn't get a tight end. They didn't get in the draft, I should say. They didn't get a tackle that everybody thought they needed to tackle. But they get a stud corner. They get a really good guy to play on the edge. They take a couple of flyers here late on receivers that I really liked. And then you look at the fact that maybe they found their punter and their kicker of the future going forward, added a return guy as well. I believe they had a pretty good draft. Where would you put it in terms of a letter grade? Solid B. They hit a double in the gap in center and left. I don't hate any of the picks they do make. My biggest critique would have been the picks they did not make. You mentioned the tight ends. Third round, not trading back up. In the fourth round for an offensive tackle, kid from Old Dominion went with the first pick on day three. The Saints went all the way up uh, and got him. I think that's something the Patriots could have done. They had the ammo to do it. But overall, you look at the athletes, the positions they did address, the players that fell to them. I thought this was a really well-done draft. And a B is fine. It's good. It's normal. It's so much better, speaking of difference and moving on from last year, than what we were talking about with the draft in 2022. I'm very happy with B. Yeah, I was at a B. I moved myself up to a B plus for two reasons. Hey. The, the first one is what we found out, what you just told us about the fact that they liked White at maybe 17. Like they would have been willing to pull the trigger on him then. Like that's how high they were on this guy. And they got him in the second round. So that that's huge for me. And the other thing is the other thing that you mentioned about Ryland being into analytics, like he's an analytical guy in terms of his kicking. I don't know how this guy can't miss. So for those two reasons, Callahan, I've gone from a B to a B plus. Well, he said he was excited to meet the media. So maybe we'll get you connected, the metric man with the metric kicker, and we'll see what we can come up with. I mean, the dude's a hose is an arm, right? So I don't know what your hose would be for a leg, uh, but he, he's he got one of them. One of the cannons on the lowest part of the ship that's not aiming yeah. upward. He's got, got a leg cannon. So, yeah, he's uh, he's super talented, works really hard. And I, I think there's a reason they took him where they did, which, again, was the highest drafted specialist ever under Belichick, which is saying something for a coach who yep. loves special teams, maybe more than at least one or two of his kids. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm now thinking about having him on every week. Maybe we can work this out yeah. with the Patriots to have him on every week now. Rookies are going to be told to shut up. But, you know, maybe I'll, I'll see if I can I can squeeze in a favor there in the locker room for it. All right. I appreciate that. That is Andrew Callahan from the Herald. Oh, Callahan, so you're going to be doing some work covering the seas too throughout this play. I know you already have been, but obviously you had to do all the draft stuff over the weekend, but you're going to be covering the seas a bit during the playoffs. Yeah, I've been coming off the bench for the Herald, helping out my guy, Steve Hewitt, who went right from the Red Sox beat to the Celtics, so he's not had a break in a while. But look, I'm watching the Celtics every night anyway, diving into the analytics, listening to you. Uh, so I've tried to put that knowledge to some good use. And so I've covered a couple Philly games during the regular season or just the one. Uh, but probably eight or 10 regular season games, and I'll be at game one on Monday. So, yeah, look for more uh, coverage in the Herald and bostonherald.com. Nice, man. You got a prediction? Sees Sixers, season six, season five, season so seven? Embiid thing is really curious. I think the Celtics win, um, but whether or not he's healthy, I think there's probably another element of they play with their food a little bit, and this gets to six. Yeah. Now, Sixers are rested. I think they've got a couple players in Harden and Maxi where they could just steal a game all into themselves. And I love the crowd at the Garden, and I think it's one of the best in the NBA. But home court just does not seem to matter in Boston with the Celtics, yeah. where the Bucks took two last year, the Heat took two last year, the Warriors took two last year and won the finals on the parquet floor, and Atlanta just got one in Boston. So I can't give home court any sort of real edge to the Celtics. So, yeah, I, I think they win in six. Yeah, I'm with you on the playing with your food thing, too. It's a good point, because that game five, that was just a complete disaster. Now, they won the series. It's great, but... 
Yeah. Man, like, I don't know how you lose that game. You have to do so many things wrong at the end. So they'll probably have one of those aggravating losses that I come on and record after and say, how can you be this dumb again and have one of these losses that you've had all season long? All right, that is Andrew Callahan from the Herald. Callahan, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. Anytime, Brian. All right, great stuff there from my buddy Andrew Callahan on the Pats and the draft. I really am happy with the draft. I thought the Patriots did a pretty good job there. There's little critiques as we went through, but I thought they did a good job in the draft. All right, coming up next, huge series coming up. Celtics and 76ers. We'll preview that next with Raheem Palmer from the Philly Special, the Ringer Gambling Show, and East Coast Bias. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Ringer Gambling Show, East Coast Bias and the Philly Special, it is Raheem Palmer. Raheem, how are you, man? I'm good. I mean, I can't complain at all. It's the NBA playoffs, one of the most exciting times of the year for me. So, um, yeah, I can't complain. How are you guys doing? Doing well, man. Getting ready for the series. It feels like it's awesome. This is one of the best rivalries in the NBA. We always talk about like the Celtics and the Lakers. And the Celtics have had a little thing with the Bucks over the past couple of years. They've played a bunch of times in the postseason. But Philly Boston just seems awesome. Now, obviously, I was not old enough to watch those series in the 80s, but even recently they've had playoff series and even going back to the end of the Garnett era, right, where they played the Philadelphia 76ers, going back to Paul Pierce and Allen Iverson. So this does feel right that we're getting this matchup. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the, the, the greatest historical rivalries, you know, in the NBA. I mean, going back to the days of Dr. J. So, um, you know, I'm excited to see it happen. I'm just hoping that we can get both teams healthy um, right now. It's yeah, not looking like that. <laughs> Yeah, so let's get to that. So Doc said that Embiid is doubtful. We got the report yesterday that it would be a pleasant surprise if you were able to play in either of the first two games in Boston. Shams reported it's considered to be more serious than a grade one LCL sprain. And it feels to me when you guys have Embiid, who's getting close to winning his first MVP, he's had this incredible season. It just feels like it's so unfortunate for them that this is happening at this particular point in time. How are you feeling entering the series? Do you feel like we're going to get anything close to 100% Joel Embiid when he even plays? What's your guess here? Does he miss two games? Does he miss one game? Does he suit up for game one? My gut feeling is that he misses the entire series. Wow. And I, I mean, I don't want to be negative. And maybe, you know, maybe it's just, you know, because I'm so used to Embiid getting injured. But when you say it's an LCL injury and then, you know, like, honestly, with the, the Celtics losing to the Hawks and game four, game five, like, and pushing it to six, we had, like, almost a week off. So with him having a week off and the series not starting until tomorrow, I mean, like, to me, like, they're basically saying that, you know, this is a real serious injury. And it's, like, one of the things that I've been noticing with injury reporting is that when it's a serious injury, they don't come out and say it. You saw it with Kawhi Leonard, you know? Like, they didn't announce it until the series was over. So I'm, like, they said this is like a like a more serious than a great great one, and you could be like two to four weeks. I'm assuming assuming that he's out for the series, and they just don't want to announce. It. Wow, I mean that would be very fortunate for the Celtics, unfortunate for the 76ers, and 
quite frankly, it would suck for people that want to watch this series because the MVP would not be out there for the majority of the series. And it has the potential to be a really good series. Obviously, if Embiid doesn't play, it's not going to be a good series. So who would that leave it to? Basketball Paul? Is he the guy that would be like next up there in terms of getting the big center minutes? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think, you know, earlier on in the season, you know, Dot, Glenn Rivers, I like to call him Glenn. I do, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I just, I mean, like early on in the season, he was playing Montrezl Harrell and those minutes weren't going too well. So, I mean, Paul Reed has like proven himself pretty well. So he's going to get those minutes. And I mean, when you look at, you know, the playoff minutes with Paul Reed on the court, the Sixers are plus 7.3 points per one to possessions with him on the floor. So oh, wow. um, they've been, yeah, I mean, they've been doing really well. With, I mean, he's been playing so well that he's going to be a viable free agent candidate for somebody. Hey, Celtics could use a backup big. They're in the market for one of those considering Robert Williams injury history. So this is an interesting coaching matchup. You mentioned Glenn Doc Rivers. He's got a history of blowing leads. And then you have Joe Missoula, who is a rookie head coach who throughout the season, Raheem, we've talked about his closing lineups on this pod where And we saw it as recently as game five against the Atlanta Hawks, where Derek White's not on the court. And he went with the two two big lineup when it made no sense at that point to play the two big. So we've had a lot of questions at times this year about Missoula. How do you feel entering a series with Doc Rivers? Because by the end of his Celtics run, I mean, he was doing some weird things. And I know Bill's talked about it on his pod before. Like he legitimately stumbled on the stretch five before anybody else did when they played the Lakers in the finals and they went to KG at center without Perk on the floor. And it was unbelievable. They could not be stopped offensively. And then he never went back to it. It was basically like the Chris Bosh role in Miami when they went to him at the center, everything opened up for them offensively. So I've had my frustration when Doc was here and I'm sure you've had some frustration as a, uh, as a 76ers fan watching him. Oh yeah. I mean, he's very frustrating, but the one thing I will say is that for whatever reason, when Doc is under man, he's a better coach. Hmm. So it's just like with Joel Embiid out there, I don't think your Celtics can completely sleep on this, the Sixers team. I, I think, you know, obviously you guys have the edge and, you know, it's going to be tough for the Sixers to, you know, win this series if Embiid misses the whole series. But I think for one, two game stretch, I do think the Sixers can still win with, you know, Doc at coach just because he just finds a way of getting the best out of, you know, guys when he's undermatched. Like, look at, you know, the 2019 playoffs. Clippers versus Warriors. That Clippers team with Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, Pat Beverly. They took two games off of the Kevin Durant and, yeah, like, Steph Curry Warriors. So, it's like, when you look at the Celtics team, and I don't want to offend your listeners, but you guys know that you guys tend to play down to your competition. Oh, yeah, believe me. We know this one, Reem. <laughs> they, they do that all the time. They gave up 150 points to the Thunder this year. They lost to the Houston Rockets. They choked away this game against Atlanta when they knew that Joel Embiid was hurt, and they still found a way to choke it. So this happens all the time with the Celtics. It's a very aggravating trait that they have. I thought after Game 3, where the Celtics lost in Atlanta, I thought, okay, that's the bad loss. They get it out of their system, and then they come back and they do what they did in Game 5. So it is, at times, been a difficult team to watch in terms of, like, they're a great team. Now they have home court advantage throughout the postseason and all that. I'm not nitpicking with the Celtics, but it is one trait that they have. They have these really bad losses. But I did want to get to Harden, right? Because I was shocked to see, he shot, I tweeted this out, 26.5% from two in the Brooklyn series. The worst among qualifiers. Actually, the second worst guy was D'Angelo Russell at 41.2%. Harden shot 26.5% on twos. And I was just running through it 49.5% of the season from twos, which is 101st. 
He was 57% at the rim, 33rd percentile, 43% on short mid-rangers, 37th percentile. He did shoot the three well this year, 38.5%, but the free throw attempts way down too, from 8.2 down to 6.2. So what is it with Harden? We know he's a great playmaker still, but he's, does he just not have the burst that he had in previous seasons? Is that why he can't basically finish at the rim or were, really were those, any? Were those um, full season numbers? That yeah, you those. The, well, the two point number, the twenty six point five percent, that's from just this series. But these other numbers, in terms of the short mid rangers in the rim, are from the season. Yeah, I mean, I think there were two Hardens this season. You know, like for me, like before the Achilles injury in the Chicago Bulls game, this was a different Harden, mm. and you saw him actually. You know, he wasn't as good. He didn't have the, his first step that he had in Houston. Obviously, it wasn't as good this year. Um, as you saw in Houston, but I think with Harden earlier this year, you saw him able to dominate switches to a certain extent. Now, I mean, right now, like, like I, I've been saying this for a while since that Achilles injury um, that he suffered on March the 20th in that Chicago Bulls game, he hasn't been the same guy. And now you're looking at a guy who's basically a playmaker. And if his three is falling, he's effective. But if his three isn't isn't falling, I mean, he's not going to give you much scoring at this point. Yeah, that's kind of in a weird way. That's kind of how Jason Tatum is. He He's not a good mid-range shooter. He doesn't really have a floater game. He can score at the rim. He can score from three and he's gotten to the foul line. But it is weird. Like the the shooting for Tatum, you always think that he's like a great shooter just if you like you watch him shoot. But then the numbers, they, they never really add up. And I'm not trying to criticize Tatum. He's a great player. I'm just saying it is weird that he can't hit anything between the three-point line and the restricted area. Okay, so Tyrese Maxey, we know he can score. He shot the three like crazy in that net series. I believe it was 15 of 30. So shot the shit out of the ball. Derek White likely will get that matchup. I'm assuming they put Smart on Harden, right? And so Maxi against the Celtics this year, five points in 40 minutes, eight points in 25 minutes, six points in 22 minutes. Now, in the opener, he did have a good game. He had 21, but he had three stinkers against the Celtics. Is this something that we should pay attention to here? Or do you think it's just, hey, it's three regular season games? Or is it the defenders the Celtics can throw at him? Um, I think, you know, it's the same issue for both James Harden and Tyrese Maxey. You guys have a lot of length, a lot of wings that it's tough for our guards to score on. And, you know, Harden can't get past these guys. But I think, you know, Tyrese Maxey also struggles as well. I mean, you got Maxey averaging 10 points on 35% shooting. Um, so I think, you know, the three-point shooting is is probably noise. He's only, you know, shooting 21% from behind the arc. I think, you know, you'll see those numbers increase. But I think it's a difficult matchup if Maxi is not getting into transition and getting those easy buckets. So um, you just got you guys just have so many wing defenders. Like I'm jealous. Like we just don't. <laughs> have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, I think both of our guards are going to struggle. I mean, if we don't. And the thing with Harden is Harden slows the game down. He doesn't, you know, play with a lot of pace, but Maxi does. So I think Maxi might be able to, you know, if he can get into transition, he can get some of those easy baskets. But I'm not sure if you know, Harden will be able to do so. All right, so you mentioned the length of the Celtics team. The big advantage they have is on the wing line. Now, Philly, I, I believe they're going to have a real difficult time matching up with Tatum and maybe actually more so with Jalen than Tatum just because Jalen is so explosive right now getting to his stops. He was the last three games against Atlanta outside of the missed free throws in game five. He was unbelievable. So I assume they start Tucker on Tatum and then you look at some of the guys, they got McDaniels coming off the bench who Tatum routinely lights up whenever he plays him. But how do you think they match up with Jalen in this? Like, is Tobias Harris going to have to cover Jalen at times in this series? Would it be Melton? Who's going to get, who do you think gets the bulk of the minutes on Jalen? 
That's tough. I mean, because I, I mean, I would, I would, I would assume it have to be Tobias. I mean, if you're gonna put PJ on, you know, Tatum, then it has to be Tobias. I mean, I think you, you, you kind of gotta have, you know, one of those two, like Garden. You know, you gotta either have PJ Tucker or, or, or Tobias on him. I mean, I think you can, you, you could bring Melton in at times, but I don't think Melton's yeah. gonna start. Yeah, I think that. Actually, Tucker would have a more difficult time with Jalen than Tatum because we have seen in the past like Tucker. Now, J- Tatum can shoot over him, but he can get physical with Tatum. It, it's more difficult to be physical with Jalen because he's such like a straight line player, right? He just wants to get yeah, downhill he's now. More, he's more explosive. Yeah. Like, whereas just Tatum is kind of like he's very handsy. He's going to use his hands to try to get try, try to create separation. And I don't think, you know, Jalen will just blow right by you. Yeah. J- Jalen is. I mean, I mean, I'm really starting to lean in towards the fact that Raheem, that Jalen is a more reliable postseason scorer than Tatum, just because he can score. For, and when we get into the postseason, he starts shooting the three well, like all season long, he's at 33 percent. And then in the closeout game, he's just such a good shot maker. He hit six of his eight threes. This is a guy that shoots 33 percent. It's just and he hit the biggest shot of the series, right? When it's 113, 110, they're mad that they don't get a call, a continuation call on Malcolm Brogdon. He steps up and he hits that three. So I just feel like Jalen, and look, this has been a thing going on here in Boston for a while. He just, he is routinely underrated because some of the impact metrics don't love him, and he's not a great passer, right? For a bunch of years, he had more turnovers than assists. So I think sometimes he gets, like, underrated because what he does well shows up more so in the playoffs maybe at times in the regular season. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, the thing with Tatum last year is that he did have that wrist injury. Um, yeah. And I think he he struggled to shoot. and. You know, the thing with Jalen Brown is that he his handle was kind of shaky. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but other other than that, I mean, I love Jalen. I mean, I kind of I, I kind of I'm with you. I, I, I kind of enjoyed Jalen Brown's game a little bit more than Tatum because Tatum is just for whatever reason, it feels like he's settling a lot. It's yeah. like he'll always take those step back um, fadeaways. And you're like, come on, man, we need you to get to the basket. So um, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, and I talked to his shooting coach, Drew Hanlon, before the season, his skills coach. He's in Bede's skill coach, too, obviously. And he was telling me they worked on floaters in the offseason. I'm like, well, where are the floaters? This is at the beginning of the season, right? So I'm like, oh, we're going to see more of a floater game from Tatum. But it's just, it never really manifested itself in the results. And it sounds like I, like, dislike Jason Tatum. I love him. He's an awesome player. But it's just, it's weird that he's never really, he just, like, doubled down on the threes and getting to the rim. He's basically turned into just, like, an analytical player. But I did want to ask you about Tobias Harris because, 20 or more points in all but one of those games in the first round. And it feels like if the 76ers have any chance, especially with the Embiid situation, Harris is going to have to have a big series. So did you take, uh, were, did you come out of that series feeling good about the performance Harris had against the Nets? Or are you saying, oh, well, it's the Nets? You know, the one thing about Tobias Harris is that he's overqualified for the role that we have him here in, in Philly. You know, this is a guy who was an all-star. This is a guy who, you know, was averaging 20 points a game before he... He joined this team and, you know, on this team, he's asked to be a spot up shooter. So if Embiid is out, I definitely think he can come in and, you know, and say, you know what? I'm going to be the second, the second leading scorer on this team. I can, you can put Tobias in the post and he can get a shot. So I'm not concerned with Tobias in this series, to be honest with you. Um, I'm just always concerned with him when he has to play the third or fourth option, because then you're asking him to play a role that's not really his role. I mean, he's done a good job at it, but, you know, yeah. for his skill set is not as a spot-up shooter. It's just not. Yeah, he's a very expensive spot-up shooter if that's the case, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so one note, I, I was looking through this today, the transition defense for Philly, 
64.1% effective field goal percentage, which is second last, 56.7% field goal percentage, which is second last, 1.17 points per possession, which is 25th. The Celtics have been, when they run, they're a very efficient transition team, fourth in field goal percentage, they're seventh in points per possession. So what is it about Philly where, is this just an Embiid thing where he's lumbering down the court at times? Like, why is there a transition defense showing up that it's so bad in, in the numbers? Is, is there a reason for this? Well, I mean, it's two things. You have two of the laziest players in the world and Joel Embiid <laughs> and James Harden. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, those two guys, they're pretty lazy. In addition to the laziness, they both turn the ball over a lot. So mm. it's like if you watch some of those yeah. Celtics games, if you watch some of the Celtics Sixers games, and, you know, this is to my Sixers credit, is that when we get you guys in the half court, we actually have an elite defense. But when we turn the ball over, and you look at that, you know, specifically the third Celtic Sixers game. Um, the, I don't know if you remember. I think it was the one in March. Not the one, you know, the last one, but the one before last. We actually, we had, the Sixers had the lead the entire game. And in oh, the yeah. third quarter, we just start turning the ball over. And <laughs> you guys had a 10-point lead. And then if you watch the fourth quarter of that game, the Sixers stopped turning the ball over. And we got it to, you know, we tied the game up. And a big part of that is the, because it's just we have two guys who just can't get back. Like, they just can't get back in transition, and we turn the ball over. So <laughs> I think if the Sixers can just not turn the ball over, then we're not going to fuel your offense as much. All right. Well, that makes sense. They have two of the laziest players in the NBA. That makes sense that the transition numbers are bad. All right. So a random question. The 76ers this year, they shot 38.7% from deep first in the league. They were 16th in attempts per game. They only took 24 in that game four that Embiid missed against Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And that kind of surprised me, that number, because I figured if Embiid's out, maybe they take more threes. Do you expect them to have their three-point numbers up in the series against the Celtics to try to, like, make up some ground here based on the fact that Embiid, had, in all likelihood, is at least missing some time? Um, I definitely do. Um, But the one thing I will say is that, you know, when Embiid is out, Tobias is featured a little bit more. So okay. obviously with T Tobias is feature, he's not going to, you know, he's not the guy who's just taking threes. He, he's going to post up. He's going to get inside, you know, things like that. And then, you know, the one thing about Maxi is that Maxi will get out in transition. I mean, he will get out in transition, you know, like really just take the easiest shot that he can get. Um, and then if you look at that game, you know, Tobias was, you know, 11 of 19 from the, from the field, you know, Tobias is typically not getting, you know, 19 field goals. And then, right. you know, the one thing I will say is that when Embiid is in the game, you know, they were doubling Embiid. So there were open shooters everywhere. So yeah. um, this was just a more balanced offense. But I think, you know, against Boston, we're going to have to fight fire with fire. <laughs> yeah, because the Celtics are definitely going to get their threes up. And if they don't, their coach is going to let him hear about it. He gets very mad when they, t the, they don't take enough threes. So some big picture items. The James Harden situation it seemed weird all season, like Woj randomly reported on Christmas Day that he could return to Houston. So do you think he's back in Philly after this season? I think that depends on what happens in this series. Hmm. Like, Depending I on just don't. Yeah, I don't think like, I mean, honestly, it does feel like he's leaning towards playing in Houston. It feels like, you know, all the reports say that. He 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 loves the community of Houston, and, and you know I love Philadelphia. It is my city, but to be a rich man in Philly, it's not the same as being a rich man in you know Houston or some of these other places. You know, with big strip clubs and 
nice weather. I mean, it's <laughs> it's dreary out here. I mean, you're in Boston, so you know. Yeah. But right now, it's it's like dreary. It's raining. You know, you just, I mean, I can understand why Harden would just say, you know what, if I'm not going to win a championship, I'll just go back to Houston. Yeah. I lived in Houston for five years, so I can tell you the weather's pretty nice there. Yeah. And then the strip clubs are better. Just, just you know, the quality <laughs> of life is just a lot better um, in Houston than it is Philly. And I think Harden is making a decision based on that. But I think also it's going to depend on what happens in this series because I don't, yeah. I mean, as much as Maury loves him, he's not going to be able to bring Harden back if he doesn't prove himself here. Now, what about Embiid? I know this, you probably don't want to hear this, but could is there a possibility that he becomes like the next disgruntled superstar in the NBA? Because they never really make that. They've had, they look, they easily could have beat the Raptors in 19 if it isn't for that crazy shot from Kawhi Leonard. We all know the history of the Jimmy Butler situation and all that, but is there a case where Embiid becomes that next disgruntled? I mean, Luke is probably pretty high on the list too, but is there a case for Embiid to be that next guy? Yeah, there is definitely a case. Um, you know, there's some rumors going out there right now, um, you know, from some of my sources saying that, you know, Dame and and Embiid want to team up with one another. And, Ooh. you know, Embiid has actually said at the start of the year that he believes that a lot of Sixers fans want him traded. And, you know, Embiid just comes off like an emotional guy. I always say this, but he's a Pisces, just like Shaq. They're both emotional water signs, and <laughs> it just feels like it doesn't take too much for, to, to piss him off. And, you know, I mean, I think the injury is is probably going to change things, especially if he doesn't play. I can't see him being disgruntled and want, wanting a trade, like, right after he got hurt. But, um, you know, if, if they don't get somebody around him and, and James Harden leaves, I mean, that's a concern. What about our guy, Doc? Is there any chance that he gets his walking papers after this series? I mean, he's had a pretty good year, right? They're third. They dealt with a lot of injuries. But if it's an ugly series against the Celtics, you think there's a chance they move on from Doc? I, I think the Joel in injury changes everything. I, I think it changes so much that, you know, you almost can't even properly evaluate Glenn or this team. It's, I mean, it's just unfortunate because it just feels like every single first round Joel and B gets hurt. Um, and it's just, it's just another year of that. All right, Raheem, before we let you go, because we got to get your take on some of the stuff that FanDuel has. Is there anything you really like in this series? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's tough to handicap this series right now, just because, I mean, you're making an assumption about, you're making an assumption about what's going on with MB, but I, I do think, I mean, you could take Boston Celtics minus one and a half games. Um, it's juicy. You're laying, um, you know, minus 205, but I think you got a positive expectation on that. Um, you know, like a lot of people would have took that, took that bet even with MB in the line. So um, you're paying a little bit more juice now, but I think that's a safe bet. But I'm going to be honest with you. I think Sixers plus 10 for game one is probably a good bet just because. And the reason I say that is just because I, I just think, you know, MB is worth, you know, something significant to the spread, obviously. But I, I think, you know, this line probably wouldn't, there's no way this line would be, you know, it'd probably be like Celtics minus five or so. And I, I think, you know, this is a market. You're going to have a lot of people betting on the Celtics tomorrow. Um, and I think you can kind of get some value on the Sixers without their, you know, their main guy. It's, it's a spot that I like to play. I mean, you see it all the time in the NBA when a team doesn't have their, their top guy, you know, other guys step up. So I would take the Sixers plus 10 for game one. All right, that is Raheem Palmer. I can't wait for the series, man. Like, I, I just wish that Embiid was healthy because 
it would make the series so much more interesting. But you have all the storylines with the history, and then you have the Doc part of it, too. Like, Doc led this team to a championship. I, I feel like the Garden's going to be electric. And I, I know to be crazy in Philly, too, on what? Wednesday. I mean, the, these are, excuse me, Friday. These are quick turnarounds. You're going Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like, what an early. Wouldn't you get those two days in between, Raheem, when you go from game two to game three? Like, I, I, I was surprised this game three wasn't on Saturday, which actually this benefits the Celtics, too. Like, the shorter rest times, considering the health of the Sixers. Yeah, and you know, now that I think about it, honestly, like with the shorter rest times, you almost could play Celtics minus two and a half. And you know, if the thing is, that's even money. So you play the Celtics minus two and a half. The Celtics are going to be 10 point favorites for both games. And if MB comes back, you still have a, a, a way of hedging. Like if he doesn't come back, you have a way of hedging out of it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's Raheem Palmer from the Ringer Gambling Show, East Coast Bias, and Philly Special. Raheem, thanks so much for the time, man, and enjoy the series. Let's go. Let's get this thing going. No doubt, man. It's a pleasure to meet you. We definitely got to keep in contact during the series. You know, we can exchange numbers. I, I mean, you're probably going to talk more trash than me um, <laughs> because MV's <laughs> hurt, so I, I can't really do too much trash talking, but um, have a nice little group chat. All right, great stuff there from Raheem Palmer, previewing the C's and the 76er series, man, if Embiid doesn't play at all in this series, it's just going to be a laugher for the Celtics. And it does, going back to this whole theme of the postseason, it does really feel like everything is turning up Celtics right now. All right, we do have time for a call, so let's get to one of those. 617-396-7172, the number. 617-396-7172. All right. Brian, it's David from Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Uh, Bruins go down in seven games to the Florida Panthers in a series that they not only led 3-1, to one, but had every opportunity to put away. I know David Poshnot gets a goal in the third of Game 7, but, I mean, for most of the series, it's just kind of a no-show. You can't have that from your best player. Um, and this is just an embarrassment. Um, you know, it's not quite as bad as, as the Pats in the 07-08 series coming – or uh, Super Bowl coming short, but um, just wasted potential, wasted opportunity – uh, a wasted season. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but truthfully, um, I'm, I'm sick of hearing President's Cup curses. You're the best team in hockey. Go be the best team in hockey. Um, own who you are. Be be what you should be, and, and you won't leave people disappointed. Um, I, I don't know what people expect teams to do if they just want them to lose uh, enough games to be in second place or below. Uh, but but you can't you can't throw away a great season like that. Uh, to to a crap team, truthfully. I mean, I know the, the the Panthers played with heart, but we served it up for them. We put it in front of the freaking net uh, all through the middle of the series, and um, I mean, it's just it's an utter embarrassment, and and it's disgusting. But I do love the show. Um, I guess we'll cheer for the Celtics because the Red Sox aren't much worth worth watching, and uh, we like the the, the past draft, so maybe it's football season. Um, thanks. All right, appreciate the call. And as I was saying earlier, the only loss that is similar to me to this one is the Patriots, where in 2010, not the 2007 one, the 2010 loss where the Patriots are 14-2 and two and they lost to the Jets. They were having an unbelievable season. They had crushed the Jets earlier that season. That's the one that is similar to me, not the 07 Patriots, because the 07 Patriots were in the Super Bowl. They at least made it to the Super Bowl. They at least made it to the final game. This Bruins team, they set all these records. They didn't even make it out of the first round, and they lost to an eight seed. They lost to the last team to get into the postseason in the Eastern Conference. The Patriots made it all the way to the Super Bowl in 07. This team choked in the first round when they had a 3-1 series lead. 
And even that game, the Patriots losing to the Giants, the worst loss I've ever experienced as a Patriots fan or as a fan of any of these teams in general. Worst loss. I mean, 2010 Celtics, that's close to, but that was game seven against the Lakers. Like you made it all the way to game seven of the NBA finals. This one is just, it's embarrassing. You have a 3-1 series lead. You won two games in Florida and you lost three games on your home ice in this series where you're the most dominant home team, most dominant team in general in the entire season and you blow it on your home ice in game five and in game seven. So that's why to me, like I can't put this up with the 07 Patriots because at least the 07 Patriots, they got to the Super Bowl. Yeah, it sucked that they lost, but at least they got there. This team couldn't even make it out of the first round. They lost three consecutive games. That's almost impossible to do in the NHL. All right, by the way, if you want to leave a voicemail after the Celtics tomorrow night, certainly can. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. All right, I did want to get to the Red Sox real briefly here because I feel like this sale thing is going to be a story all season long. So after a sale had that horrible outing that we talked about last week against Baltimore, he bounced back in a major way on Sunday. Six and a third, just the three hits, one earned, five strikeouts. And how about this nugget? It was the first time he recorded an out in the seventh inning since, wait for it, 2019. That's the last time he recorded an out in the seventh inning prior to today. Unreal, right? And that run came in the sixth inning. Rosario, a single to bring in Quan on a four-seamer that was out of the zone. Quite frankly, it wasn't even a bad pitch, just a nice piece of hitting from Rosario. Now, the one thing that you would have an issue with in that at bat is he was ahead 0-2 and Rosario fouled off three pitches. That would have been old vintage Chris Sale. He puts that guy away, right, when he gets ahead 0-2. But anyway, the big thing is Chris Sale found a way to have success in that game on Sunday without missing many bats. So in that game Sunday, 54 swings, 11 whiffs. So that's just 20.5%, which is not a big number at all. In fact, it's a really low number. Only eight qualified starters are south of 20% this season. So that's a really, really low number. But what he did was he located his pitches. We always talk about the command with Chris Hill, right? It's not just about missing your pitches out of the zone. It's he was missing spots in the zone. This season, his meatball percentage, which basically means the percentage of pitches that are middle-middle, 8.6%, which that is a huge number. Only six starters are north of that on the season. And like Shohei Otani's up there, but the thing with Shohei Otani is his stuff is so good that it doesn't matter, right? And when Chris Sale was really rolling, when he was at his prime, he could do that as well, but he's not that type of pitcher right now. The stuff isn't at that level. So a lot of those pitches were middle-middle, which he avoided on Sunday. And the other component is, when he was missing his spots, it was leading to a lot of, it was leading to a lot of loud contact, especially in that Baltimore start. So entering Sunday, 43.3% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour. That was 95th of 123 starters, minimum of 20 innings. That's a high number. Now, also, you look at the number entering Sunday, 11.9% of his batted balls were barreled up, 108th out of those 123 starters. So he's given up a ton of loud contact, and he's given up a ton of good contact in the air, right, by that barrel percentage. So what about the start on Sunday? Okay, 21 batted balls, just four were hard hit. That's 19%. Patrick Sandoval of the Angels is the best in Major League Baseball in terms of preventing loud contact at 23.8%. Sale was at 19% on Sunday. That's unbelievable, right? And by the way, he wasn't barreled up once in this game. So that's how he was so good in this game on Sunday, despite the fact that he didn't have the swings and misses. So that's why it's just all about location and all about command for Chris Sale, especially if his stuff isn't quite what it was in the past, right? 
He still has really good stuff. It's just not what it was in 17 and 18. Now, he had a good fastball today, sat at 94.1 on average, and he threw his hardest fastball of the year, 97.8 miles per hour. But the slider, right now the slider just is not what it is. We've kind of talked about this in the past about he's not getting the same horizontal break on his slider. It averaged just nine inches of horizontal break today, and he still managed five whiffs on 13 swings, which is a good number, 38.5%. And the reason is he was locating that pitch, right? So Sale in his prime, 14 inches of horizontal break on that slider, right? Like a Frisbee. Today, as we mentioned, it was at nine. So the reason it can be effective if it doesn't have that massive horizontal break like it's had in the past is if he actually locates it. And that's exactly what he did today. So Cora mentioned, too, that he needed to be more athletic on the mound. His mechanics were getting off, right, where he wasn't finishing in the same place. And today he got back to that. So, and I know like Chris Sale is still going to have swing and miss stuff. I'm not saying he's not going to, but he's not the same pitcher that he once was, especially that slider. So if he can just locate his pitchers, pitches more, that's the thing that's going to make him an effective and a pretty good borderline top of the rotation guy. He can get back to being a number one or a number two starter, not an ace. I don't think he has that in him right now, but if he's going to get back to being at the top end of the rotation, he's got to be able to command his pitches because it's not like what he used to be. It didn't matter. Chris Sale could miss his spots and he would still get swings and misses. misses. He's just not that guy anymore. All right. I did want to get to Rafi real quick because he had the big home runoff police sack on Saturday in the first inning. But that game on Sunday, he went 0 for 3. He did walk, but he had two strikeouts. He had three swings at Logan Allen's, or excuse me, six swings at Logan Allen's sweeper. He whiffed on three of them. So Rafi this season, entering Sunday, hitting just 250 against breaking balls. Now, he has had some bad luck, but last year, that number was at 270. In 2021, that number was at 302. And if you look at the numbers against lefties this season, in terms of breaking balls against left-handed pitchers, he's at just 143. Horrible, right? Now, in fairness, Logan Allen, who he faced on Sunday, he's got nasty stuff, but that 143 number is on the season. And one of the things I've mentioned prior to the season is, can Rafi hit better against lefties this season? Well, the reality is that hasn't shown up. He's 9 for 43 against left-handed pitchers this season, which is just 209. Horrible, right? Now, he has hit for some power, but still just 209 in terms of the average. It's really feast or famine, and it's been more famine than feast. And so it's shocking to look at Rafi's numbers overall on the season. If you look at it, he's hitting 239 in totality entering Sunday. 122nd out of 180 qualified hitters. His on-base percentage is 286. 151st. Now, the good news is the power is still there, obviously. 578 slugging percentage, which is 12th, and a 339 isolated slugging percentage, which is third, which you basically just take the slugging percentage minus the batting average. So he is hitting for a lot of power. 10 home runs tied for the second most in baseball. But there's no reason that Rafael Devers should be hitting 239. He's way too good of a hitter. Rafi should be closer to 300 than hitting in the 230s, right? So the problem for Devers this season has been the swing decisions have been bad. And he has zero discipline at the plate right now. His walk rate. Now, I did tell you he walked on Sunday, which is great to see because he isn't walking this year. 5.9%. That's 145th in Major League Baseball. And he's swinging at 38.4% of pitches out of the zone. 172nd out of those 180 qualified hitters. So look, you don't want Rafael Devers to not be like this free swinging type of hitter. But it's out of control right now. It's absurd how many pitches that he's swinging at that are just completely out of the strike zone. He has got to be more disciplined. And the walk rate thing, he's never going to be a high walk guy like Yoshida or something along those lines or Kyle Schwarber. Like, he's never going to be a big-time walk guy. 
But the fact that the walk rate's at 5.9, last year is at 8.1. So that is a massive, massive dip off. So look, it's great that Rafi's hitting for power and it's great that he's hitting home runs. And I know he made an error on Sunday, but he has improved tremendously defensively this season. Like he's definitely taken a step forward there, but he's just going to be better in terms of the approach at the plate. It's right now. It's absurd. This guy's one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. He's just going to be more disciplined because when he does make contact, I mean, he's hitting the ball like crazy. The hard hit rate is over 50% this season. Like, there's loud contact all over the ballpark. He's just got to keep him in the strike zone a little bit. Like, I'm all right with him swinging with some pitches out of the zone, but the level it's at right now, he's just got to tone it down a little bit. But good win for the Red Sox on Sunday. They take two of three from the Guardians. Now the big test is coming, right? Now you have the Blue Jays coming in for a four-game series and just circling back for sale. Let's see what he does next Friday against Philly because Here's the problem for Sale this season. What we've seen is he has a bad start, then a good start. A bad start, then that great start against the Twins. Then he has a bad start, right? So he's just going to find a way to put two starts together. And hopefully this, the command that we saw today, is repeatable against the Philadelphia Phillies coming up on Friday night. All right. We will be back with you Monday night after the Celtics at the 76ers. So we're going to record after that game on Monday night, so make sure to be paying attention to the schedule going forward because we'll record Wednesday night after game two of the series as well. So just a little bit of a change up to the schedule because we want to record after those Celtics and Philadelphia 76ers games, obviously. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Monday night.